Radio Vet Nurse, the podcast with your host, Kat Robinson. You're listening to Radio Vet Nurse, the podcast for vet nurses where we tell our story. I'm your host, Kat Robinson. Vet nursing can be a tough gig, and yet we absolutely love it. So when it comes to vet nurses, who are we? How do we achieve greatness? How do we cope with the more challenging parts of our job? Radio Vet Nurse is our way to start a dialogue around these questions and to create a space where we can tell our story. Each episode, you'll hear from a different vet nurse about their personal experiences in life and in vet nursing. In this episode, you'll get to know Hayley from Animal Emergency Services or AES in Brisbane. I've been wanting to get the emergency nursing angle for a while now because I think it's a really exciting part of our story. I reached out to Dr. Alex Hines, who's a senior vet at AES and one of the new faces on the iconic Bondi Vet TV show. Side note, it's back. Channel 9 this year. You're welcome. Dr. Alex recommended Haley as one of AES's most senior emergency and intensive care nurses. As a veterinary technician and nurse in the pet intensive care unit, Haley helps treat the most critical of patients. If you do watch Bondi Vet this year, you'll probably see Haley doing what she loves, caring for patients in the ICU, which also makes her a reality TV vet nurse. Haley's been in the industry for over 20 years, but is absolutely brimming with enthusiasm, particularly about nurse empowerment, teamwork with our vets, and utilizing nurses to the best of our ability. Haley and I are both talkers and we also just clicked, so this is one of my longer episodes. As always, you can find links to everything we discuss in the show notes on my website, radiovetnurse.com. Hi Haley, welcome to Radio Vet Nurse. Hello, thanks for having me. <laughs> my pleasure. It's uh, it's pretty early um, today as we're catching up, so hopefully both of our brains are going to start kicking into gear. I'm about halfway through my coffee, so I'm, I'm getting there. How about you? Oh, I've had a full cup of tea, so I'm good. I'm good to go, surprisingly, for early. (laughs) (laughs) Not your natural work state, I know. Well, let's start with an easy question then. Do you listen to podcasts? And if yes, what are some of your favourites? Yes, I actually do listen to podcasts. I'm a bit of a nerd, though. I don't um, listen to um, anything other than... um, veterinary and emergency related podcasts. I've Love just it. started listening to Radio Vet Nurse, which I am really, really impressed by. And I'm not just saying that <laughs> now that I'm on the, on the podcast. <laughs> um, but I also really love the MCRIT podcast, which is a critical care and resuscitation podcast um, um, by an American um, doctor. Yep. Um, the Nursem, it's like spelled N-U-R-S-E-M. Um, yeah, by some human nurses. Um, and every now and then I'll listen to the Vet ECC podcast as well. Yes, I have heard of that one, but I hadn't heard of the other two. So that's good. Yeah, they're really good. And do you do you listen like on the way to work or just while yeah, you're yeah. generally um, on the way to work or um, not usually driving home from work. That's my chill out time. Yeah. Um, but mm. on the way to work and um, I had a, I have a son who did not sleep well in the early days um, and I would drive around to get him to sleep in the daytime. So I would listen to podcasts. I hear ya. I'm, I'm imagining that you're talking around the four-month mark when they just... Oh, my God. He tried to kill me. I swear yeah. to God. <laughs> me too, me too. Yep, I hear you as well. I started listening to a lot of podcasts then too. So um, just to set the scene for us, where are you from and where do you currently live? Um, I'm a Brisbane girl through and through. Um, I haven't 
really strayed too far away from from here done lots of travel but I live in Brisbane at the moment um Mm -hmm. and um no I'm boring I haven't lived anywhere else my family lives all over the world um but I've I've stayed in Brisbane I love Brizzy. I was there for five years, and I, oh, um, yeah. So nice. I lived in um, Melbourne after I I left home after school, and I was down there for five years, just freezing. Eventually, going, I just want to live in Queensland. I think, and I went to Brisbane and loved it. So um, I don't blame you for not leaving. Yeah, I mean the humidity probably not as crazy as where you are now, but yeah, um, <laughs> no, love love my Brisbane. Yeah, weather. me too. And um, I've got a bit of a a bit of a description here of your career so far, and I've, I'm finding it um, really interesting. But if you can, you explain how you got your foot in the door with your first vet nursing job. You were a, like a kennel hand and hydrobathing when you were twelve. Yeah, so I think a little bit illegally uh, I started my career. Um, oh, just you know, cliche story. Loved. Loved animals more than people probably in the early days. Um, And I had guinea pigs um, and I used to take them into my local general practice and they were so lovely and kind of just let me come in and see them when they weren't really sick, but I just wanted to hang out with them. (laughs) Um, Eventually they offered me a little kennel hand job and then a hydrobathing job. Um, So I got my foot in the door that way and uh, started my vet nursing certificates um, when I was still in high school and finished my Cert 4 um, and then I uh, went to uni and did my vet tech Did degree. you do that at UQ in Gatton? At UQ, yeah, in Gatton. Yeah, awesome, awesome. Um, and so so did you do your Certificate 4 as part of a course through your school or just on the side? It was on the side. So I went to a Catholic all-girls school um, yep. and I'm it really weirdly, my family is not religious so um, at all. My dad's actually an atheist so Me I don't know too. how that happened. I went, also went to a Catholic all-girls school and my mum is a lapsed Catholic and my dad is an atheist. So yeah, that's yeah, exactly totally my, my story as well. Um, so I... <laughs> Um, I actually got to drop, we did two religion subjects um, and in grade 10, I got to drop one after yep. speaking to our careers counsellor and said, mm-hmm. this is definitely what I really, really want to do. Yeah. Um, and she was amazing and, oh gosh, sorry, my dog was barking. Is that okay? That's okay. <laughs> we, we are familiar with these noises. <laughs> um um, she, um, was amazing and set it all up and, um, I got to start doing my cert two initially, um, yeah. with the AIRC. Awesome. And did you do your whole certificate with the AIRC? I did. Yeah. Cert two yeah, and cert great. four. That's yeah. excellent. And you've heard Sue's episode, I'm guessing. I did. Yeah. That was awesome. Yes. She's amazing. And, um, where do you work at the moment and what's your role and what you're doing from day to day? So I currently work at the Animal Emergency Services um, in Underwood in Brisbane, so south of Brisbane. Um, Predominantly, I'm in the pet ICU there. Um, So I'm one of the senior nurses on um, both the AES and pet ICU team. Uh, Day to day, um, if I'm in the pet ICU, so um, I'll be going in and looking after the most critical, critical patients in the hospital, running running um, the show in there kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Um, 
referring back to vets and talking to all of our specialists in emergency vets um, in regards to patient care and um, keeping all treatments up to date. Um, and then I guess if I'm out on the floor in the emergency hospital, generally I'm in a shift supervisor role, so helping um, run the team out there as well. That's great. And if if anybody is on uh, on Instagram and um, they're familiar with any of the sort of key personalities in in the veterinary scene in in Australia, I guess, and particularly um, like the the media vets, then um, they would probably be familiar with some of the accounts that are running from your colleagues, like um, Dr. Alex Hines, who's one of the current Bondi vets in in the new series that's starting, and also Gerardo Poli, and of course, Dr. Brooke. Yeah, Um, yeah. And these are all accounts that I follow. And just the other day, I saw a photo that Gerardo put up of a critical patient. I'm I'm guessing it might have been at um, Jindalee, but an intensive care patient. And there there were so many um, pumps and um, you know fluid lines and gadgets associated with this one patient that I, you know I was tree just of life going, we call that. Oh my god! Like, <laughs> um, so that was at Jindalee, but that's a very common scene. Um, in our ICU at Underwood and um, something that um, I set up on a daily basis. Just but, one fluid pump is enough to drive you mad. Like, <laughs> Yeah, no, they definitely keep us on our toes with, with the amount of um, different CRIs we can get going for them. Yeah, yeah, it's amazing. And I guess that's something that you just build up gradually, those skills. Hey, and one day turn around and go, oh, my God, I'm managing this crazy tree of life with a million things attached to it. And Yeah, definitely. It, you get um, more and more exposed, but there's there's a lot of um, a lot of home study as well. You're constantly kind of, kind of um, trying to keep up to date with all the current um, current treatments and protocols. So... Yeah, eventually it just becomes a normal, normal day of life. And so you're uh, talking to me from your study dungeon, you called it. Yes. Is that, um, do you sort of just go home and read up on things there as they arise so that you're knowing the, the best protocols and, and the best um, ways of handling certain cases? Is is it all sort of mainly self, self-paced self study that you're doing? Yeah, some self-paced study. Um, sometimes it's talking to one of our um, head vets, senior vets in the hospital um, after a case, uh, a difficult case particularly. Um, but yeah, I am definitely a, um, as you can tell by the podcast that I listen to, I'm, I'm actually an auditory learner. Um, yes. I've discovered. So I like to go home and listen and have someone tell me about it. Um, yeah. but, and then I'll, and then I'll go read about it second. Yeah. Um, so there's a lot of self-directed, um, study that I do, but we've got a lot of access to different um, study materials in the hospital as well that we can look up right there and then on shift. Yeah, yeah, that's important, isn't it? It's so good that you know the way that you learn too, because for some people that can take a long time to figure out, and it's um, it, it's difficult if you don't understand how it works for you, and if you're not able to sort of direct yourself in the best way possible. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. I, it was, I think it's a little, it's not common for vet nurses to be auditory learners and a lot of them are kinesthetic and visual. And that's yeah. definitely the majority of um, our nurses in our hospital because we, we try to um, figure out what type of learners they are when they come in um, for training uh, so that we can utilize the best resources and figure out how we're going to get through to them in the best way. 
Do you test people? with? Do you give them any kind of like quiz to figure that out or just sort of Yeah, we've had a couple of quizzes that we do. Um, We try and do uh, disc profiles as well, Mm -hmm. Um, personality tests um, to figure out what type of um, personalities they are and how they'll best fit in a team and their communication styles, all that sort of thing. That's great. I'd love to um, to be doing some more of those with, with our team. What was the profile you mentioned? DISC profile, so D-I-S-C. Okay, um, that's cool. It, yeah, it's really awesome. I'm, I'm a big, big fan of it. We've been, um, I've been at AES for almost eight years now and um, I remember they started it really, really early on when I um, when I was there and it just helps. I mean, in such a big hospital, we've got you know, over 40 nurses and wow. I think 20 to 30 vets. Um, mm-hmm. And then we've got our C- amazing CCR team um, and um, kennel hands. Um, and then we also have the specialists that um, are separate to us but in the same building. Yeah. So there's a lot of people you need to communicate with. Um, yeah. And um, learning other people's communication styles I just find really, really interesting Um to learn how to adapt your communication so that everybody um, gets along and, um, you know, can can get the best out of um, each other in the day and common goal of looking after the patient and the clients. Definitely. I think sometimes um, it's easy to, to be in a situation where you might be offended by someone or frustrated with someone or not understanding why they're not doing what they're supposed to be doing. And then if you, if you can stop and think about it and be like, oh, no, actually I think that they are doing their best and they are doing what they think is wanted of them because it's yeah, maybe absolutely. what they would want and um, it's nice if you can sort of break that stuff down and and, um, and not just get caught up in your initial sort of reaction of basing it on on how you would act because the beauty of this world is that we are all so different. Yeah, definitely. And embrace different I think is really important. We don't want all of the yeah. same personality types in, in the hospital. We want um, all different sorts because they bring something different to the table which enhances yeah. the care that we give. So yeah, mm-hmm. we're um I I love that our um one of our directors, she's she's very, very much into these personality tests and I, I, I really love it. That might be on my list for 2019, I think, because I've been looking at it for ages, um, thinking, how would we do this? But I'm sure it doesn't take too long to to just, um, you know, just distribute some of these quizzes either as you're employing people or at a staff meeting and start start looking at, at your team and, and the makeup and being able to direct people to their best potential. So Yeah, definitely. And with the specialist centre, is it a specialist centre by day and then the emergent center, emergency centre by night or is it emergency 24 seven and the specialist center operating by day how does that all work so it's a little bit confusing um the so the pet icu is 24 7 yeah um, and it's a separate um dedicated pet icu within the building it's in um in its own little area with um it's enclosed doors everything um so it stays nice and quiet um and then the specialist uh runs through the daytime and they're generally open from about 7.30 till 6 p.m. Monday to Friday. Mm-hmm. They're open for some consults on Saturday, but the emergency team takes over from 6 p.m. at night till 8 a.m. in the morning on weekdays and then 24 hours on weekends and public holidays. 
Okay, cool. And so during the day, are patients getting transferred back to their GP vet or if they're sick enough to stay there in ICU? How does that all yeah, work? Yeah, so a lot of the time well, we like to refer back to the to our general practices, our referring clinicians. We will try and refer back to them most of the time. Um, but if they are, if the owners are choosing to have a specialist consult because it's something a little bit more complicated, mm-hmm. um, then they'll get referral to the specialist. And then if they're um, critical, they will be referred to the ICU and one of the specialists um, will usually take over that patient, um, be the primary clinician for that patient. Okay, awesome. And for you, what's the best part of your job? You've got a few different hats that you're wearing by the sound of it. What's your favourite? Oh, gosh. Um, I love going to work and I think everybody sees that when I work. I just love <laughs> It's just Going to work is just one of my favorite things in the world, um, which is crazy. Um, but, um, oh, you know, the cliche, helping the animals and the owners, I think is something that I will never, ever get over. It's just a drug almost, um, mm. being able to, to help the sickest of the sick in one of the worst situations that mm. their owners and they could ever imagine being in. Um, and, you know, being able to help them in a positive way and getting them home again. I just, Mm. I just don't think there's any better, better thing than that. Um, and why it's why I keep going back. Um, and there's obviously really, really sad, sad parts of the job and, Mm. um, especially working in emergency and critical care, um, where you have to be okay that even if it is a, is a bad ending or not the ending that everybody hoped for mm. that that we've all done our best to help that patient and their owners in the mean in you know while they were there yeah and it's um it can be so unpredictable as well these critical cases like we're we're lucky these days we don't see nearly as much tick paralysis but we are in a crazy tick paralysis area and you know five years ago when we first opened and the hospital was just always full of tick patients during during tick yeah. season quotation marks um there, there would be some that you'd that, that they would come in walking and you'd think well they'll be fine they'll probably go home in a couple of days and they wouldn't make it and there would be others that would just be splayed out and paralyzed and cyanotic and you'd be like yep. oh i give you i give this one 24 hours like it's not looking good and they go home you know they're up yeah. and walking in a few days yep. so you just yep. can't predict often with these cases too and um, it's hard to get invested or try to not get invested or to be trying to to talk to clients who are wanting um, to know or they want a guarantee or they want a prognosis and you have to just constantly be saying, well, this this is what happened in the last hour and that's all we can say. Yeah, exactly. And I think as well, I mean, uh, the first ticks are horrific down here as well, but you're right, the, the preventative have – preventatives have um, – reduce the amount of tick cases that we see which is amazing um yeah so i just i remember the i started in tick season at aes um i had worked <laughs> at an emergency hospital the university emergency hospital um prior to going to aes um but the numbers that aes saw of ticks was just insane mm. i think one weekend the one of the first weekends i worked um we had over 50 tick cases wow. um, that we treated just in the space of a 48-hour period. Oh, wow. Um, and, the, you know, there was three or four um, 
um, needing life support at different times, um, multiple intubated. It was just a scene um, mm. that I'd never experienced before and sadistically I thought it was awesome that we got to <laughs> be these people that could fix these animals, you know, and help yeah. them. So, um, no, yeah, I tick season's definitely a crazy time too. You do definitely, well, we, we used to definitely, you know, again, sadistically, as you're saying, you would get your chops up in tick season, like you would have the skills by the end of it. Mm, <laughs> definitely. <laughs> um, it, it, I think, what's the saying, baptised with fire? Anyone who starts yeah. in tick season, you're kind of baptised with fire. We try to support everyone as yeah. much as possible, but inadvertently you'll be baptized with fire absolutely we opened in tick season and it was my first exposure to to a veterinary practice at all and Mm -hmm. so the phone was just ringing all day with with new tick patients being admitted and matt and i were sleeping at work for weeks and weeks and weeks on end because patients just needed around the clock care we don't have an emergency center up here um there there has been one that's opened in Cairns in recent times but um i mean that's still an hour and a half away so we still don't really refer a lot of tick patients there but it was just wild and it's uh, such a blessing to have the better preventatives now so we're very lucky I think yeah very lucky and I mean I can only imagine how the pressure of a lot of these situations is enough on its own but when you've got um, various things being filmed in your in AIS sorry AES as well so you've got you know Bondi vet but um, Mm -hmm. I was speaking to Dr Alex and she said you know there's all sorts of things being filmed at any at any one time not even just Bondi vet does that put the pressure on or do you not notice like what's it like being a reality tv kind of vet nurse as well yeah, so that's been a, an interesting transition. Um, I guess, in all honesty, a lot of us were a little bit nervous um, before before they started filming. Mm-hmm. Um, we weren't sure sure how it was going to um, if it was going to disrupt the flow of the hospital. Were they going to want us to to refilm emergency? You know, <laughs> we just weren't sure how yeah. it was all going to work, but. Um, Alex has been amazing through the whole process and um, very much kept us all in the loop. The film crew were awesome. I love them. Mm-hmm. They were really, really um, respectful and kind and they had a genuine concern for, for the animals that were coming in as well. Yeah. Um, so I, I was pleasantly surprised by the whole process. Um, mm-hmm. I was in the pet IC majority of the time, so... They were mostly filming what was coming to to crash bench, which was out in the main hospital. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, when things got transferred into ICU, um, you might see me as a cameo background <laughs> cameo. Um, <laughs> there were, you know, a bit of HR and um, surrounding it. There were some some people that didn't want to be on camera, which we totally respected. And there's a list of names of people who don't want to be on camera. Um, yep. So there was a lot of talk and. Um, um, communication prior to it going out um, with airing people's concerns and then continued talks throughout the filming process um, with people and um, the ability to raise any concerns that they had um, if they were worried about it. But, yeah, it's been um, much better than I expected. It's really, really exciting that we get to show the world what we do. Um, And um, I think it's airing 
um, early 2019 on Channel 9 on Friday nights. I got told. Oh, awesome. I was wondering because I am following a couple of the accounts like um, is it Dr. Kate? And yeah, yeah. She's down in Bondi. She's I down in Bondi, yeah, and Alex, of course. So I have been thinking I'll, I'll be able to see through their accounts when it's airing. But did you grow up watching that show? I did. I did grow up watching it. And it's hard to watch um, your own industry sometimes. Yeah. I, I think in a yeah. funny way, you're just kind of like, oh, because you know that um, pu- what the public wants to see is very different to, you know, what we might find exciting. Yeah. So, you know, we might find that, that trauma that comes in that um, – uh, that you know needs a lot of work up and a lot of resuscitation and um, life-saving surgery is something that would get us all going in, mm. in the industry like oh that's really cool but it's not mm. not necessarily something that would make the, the public um, yes. comfortable the yes. public doesn't want to see hurt animals I think it breaks their hearts um, yeah. and they don't see that from where we're coming from we've got this opportunity to fix them yeah so yeah it's a it's been interesting learning um, from the film crew as to what the public um, perception um, yes. is um, and what they will find interesting. So I guess it's audience-driven, isn't it? Audience, that's the word, yeah, yeah audience-driven. Yeah, yeah. and um, – and it's it's funny you say filming at the at the crash bench because I I remember watching that show too and as someone who never thought I would be in this industry, and it 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 can look like it's um quite hectic what's going on and that that, that you would want to be panicking but now that I've been in this industry and I guess I'm glad too that in a being in a in a rural practice we we don't get to refer emergencies so we get to deal with with lots of interesting cases and of course I don't want these horrible cases coming in but um, we don't refer you know blood transfusion cases or snake bite cases we, we manage all of them and and I remember the first few times emergencies would come in I'd be panicked and I'd be looking to Matt like why is he so calm and looking at the other experienced nurses going why are they so calm like this is a hit by car dog you know and I would um and I I would be really on edge and and um and then after a few cases and once I started knowing what I was doing I don't know if you've ever had this but eventually I felt time slow down during those times rather than speed up and you know you would just have that clarity of okay let's get a catheter in and let's get the snake venom detection test going and let's get you know an estimate for this owner and explain the consent and you realize you kind of do have time at the crash bench like it can be all systems go but there is definitely just a procedure that you follow every time it's a clinical examination um, and you know starting with with the key things that need to be done first and and I no longer panic have you had that experience oh absolutely I mean um, I think knowledge is power first of all once you kind of know what you're doing and have been trained adequately and have really good role models as well to learn from then each each event becomes you know less stressful you you know what you're doing um you've got we've got really good triage protocols that we we follow and um re um we uh show our nurses each year you know we do tutorials on them um we do constant cpr um um, practicals within our practice and get up to date with our recover guidelines within with everybody that's in the practice um so it starts off very very scary um but yep. 
then once you know what you're doing, it becomes, yeah, like I said, like I can't even describe it, like almost like a drug where you're like, I'm going to step in in this respiratory um, distress patient and put it on life support because I know exactly how to help in this yes. situation. Yeah, I know what you mean. Like it's it's – it is almost like a drug. It's almost just like stepping into this adrenaline-fueled euphoria where you just yep. get in this zone and you know what part you're playing and yeah. um, you're not excited that it's happening but you're excited that you're getting to give this pet a chance and to intervene and to help this owner. So I I think it's good for vets in the city that they can not be on call so much when there are emergency centres. But as I said, um, from... <laughs> From my point of view, I really like that we that we get to deal with with a lot of these emergency cases because I think I would get bored just do, in a in a practice that just did vaccinations and D six and whatever. So yeah, I I hear you, and I think that and I worked in general practice for twelve years, and I I don't regret a second of it. I loved I loved where I worked. I loved the people that I worked with. I miss the clients that. Um, I've developed more of a relationship with because that's very hard in emergency yes. and critical care to, to yeah. have, have those relationships um, with clients as much as, you know, you, you don't see that puppy grow up from mm. puppy school to, you know, that geriatric dog. Yeah. Um, so you, I do miss that, but um, definitely emergency critical care is where I'm meant to be <laughs> right now. You did your 12 years in a general practice and then you were at UQ's emergency centre mm-hmm. and um, in your words, you were a night crawler there yes. and <laughs> are most of your shifts at AES at night as well? Yes, most of them. So um, we do have to rotate around through, especially in the ICU, we have to rotate. We've got on a rotating basis so that it's fair for everybody. Um, I would love all my shifts to be nights. <laughs> I <laughs> Up until I had my son, um, they were all nights. But um, when I came back into, uh, I had to go on a contract and um, get shifts um, that worked out for my son and care of my son. So I decided to do a rotating roster as well, go into the daytime shifts. And I I will be honest with you that I I hate working in the daytime more than any other shift. It just for some reason feels like such a waste of a day to me. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I love being at work, but I'm like, oh, the sun is shining outside. I could be doing something. I could be going to the beach. I could be um, hanging out with my family. On average, how many hours of sleep a night do you think you get? Oh, is this pre-sun or (laughs) (laughs) post-sun? Give me both. Give me both. Um, I was pretty good at getting, you know, catching up on sleep after shift. You know, I'd have my a standard eight or so hours. Yeah. Um, if I have a early morning, uh, so when I say early morning, there are 2 a.m. or 3 a.m. starts that we do in oh the hospital. Oh, my God. Yeah. So the first shift, um, your first run of 3 a.m.s, for example, uh, it's quite difficult to sleep before that first shift because you've got to readjust your body clock. So I might only get you know, four hours or so. Um, but I'm very at peace with the fact that I won't sleep. Otherwise you get anxiety about, you know, not being able to sleep properly. Yeah, and then you yeah. can get into a rhythm for the next few shifts. Um, so, um, yeah, standard seven, eight hours. Um, That's good. But I'm a good sleeper. So I can, okay. yeah, it's, I think I'm, a, I'm built to be a shift worker because, I don't get anxiety about going to sleep. I can, my head will 
as soon as my head hits the pillow, I'm asleep. I'm so jealous of people like you. Yeah, I know. There are a lot of people that are jealous. <laughs> do you sleep on airplanes and in cars and stuff too? Yeah, sure. Oh, damn you. <laughs> my husband has been known to be flying back from Europe and get on the get off the plane in Singapore or wherever, have a couple of beers, get back on the plane and be asleep before it takes off and then yeah. wake up when the when it's hitting the ground in Sydney or whatever and everyone around him just being like, we were climbing all over you to get in and out of our chairs. You missed several meals. Like we, we dropped something right near your head. Like how did you do that? Yes. So that is my husband. Oh, no, that's me and you are my husband. So. Oh. Um, my mm. husband doesn't sleep on any planes. He'll be awake for, you know, if we do a long haul flight to London, he'll be awake for 24 plus hours. Me um, too. Me too. And yeah, I'll, I'll sometimes fall off, I fall asleep before they finish the safety talk. I don't know what it is. <laughs> Same with Matt. I just stare at him going, God damn it. Yeah. <laughs> it's going to be a long 24 hours. <laughs> yeah. Watch all the movies. <laughs> yeah. No, I definitely feel for your husband. Um, and did you do you think that being like a night crawler set you up well for having a baby and being up, you know, throughout the night in those early months? Oh, it's funny that. I mean, I, I probably went into um, having a baby a little bit cocky. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> I, I think I thought, oh, I've done this. I know I can fall asleep really easily and I, I'm awake at all crazy hours, but nothing can prepare you for a newborn. <laughs> I've decided. Um, I don't know about you, but nothing could have prepared me for the the relentless sleep deprivation. Mm, I know. In the early days, I know. And I used to, I used to operate in what I called the haze. Yes. Um, because some, some like the sleep deprivation on some occasions, I'd, I'd wake up and do something crazy, like you know the stereotypical put your keys in the fridge or whatever. And I just look at what I was doing and be like, I'm not driving a car today. Um, I'm going to play some nice music and play with the blocks with my son, but I'm not making any decisions and I'm not doing anything difficult and I'm having every nap with him. And yeah, and I don't think anyone can prepare you. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you go into survival mode. That's exactly what I did as well. Actually, my husband's just taken over the sleep, the nighttime duties, and we've just um, night weaned my son. And so when he got to 16 months old, uh, that was, I've, I've now started um, having like a full night's sleep in the master bedroom uninterrupted. Oh, nice. And it's the, f yeah, the first time in 16 months that I slept for longer than four hours at a time, I think. So. Um, the first few nights I just couldn't sleep and I was like, I'm so used to being awake every, every hour and a half. I just, um, have to relearn how to, how to link my sleep cycles again. Yeah. It's crazy, isn't it? They just change everything, everything for you. But yes, no, my, because I work nights, my husband and I have been taking turns, um, with my son. I went to back to work when he was, uh, about 10, 11 months old. Yep. Um, working nights, just a few, um, maybe two a week or so, and then have increased it since then. Um, he's, he's two in March. So, um, but yeah, my husband does, um, usually Thursday, Friday and Saturday nights. Um, yep. and I do the rest Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. 
Ah, nothing can prepare you. No, nothing. So this, my next question is a bit turned on its head for you because yeah. I normally ask people, what's your routine when you wake <laughs> up in the morning? How do you set yourself up for the day? But I want to know how you set yourself up for your alarm goes off at 1 or 2 a.m. and you get got to go to work. What do you do? Tea, hands down, cup of tea. I mm. cannot, I don't function. I'm one of those people that needs that cup that says, do not talk to me <laughs> until I've had it. I, I'm not a coffee drinker, which is crazy probably yeah. for um, an emergency worker. Yeah. I never have been. I just, it, I, I don't know if I'm so go, go, go all the time that coffee just makes me feel really jittery and, yeah. um, I'm definitely, you know, a running type. I'm always, I mean, I don't run oh, funny, but I, I'm always <laughs> running, always doing something. And, um, but yeah, a coffee just doesn't, I don't like it. It makes me too twitchy and jittery um but yeah cup of tea I need to just sit in the silence of yeah my house um my cat will usually come find me and sit next to me while I drink a cup of tea well that's nice and then you find it pretty easy to wake up and and hit the ground running and drive through the darkness and start your shift at 2 3 a.m yeah it's odd I do find it pretty easy to get to I find it harder to get up um you know at at five, six o'clock in the morning when my son wakes up. Yeah. Um, and it takes me a long time to wake up then. <laughs> but if I wake up at night or if I'm going to a shift, you know, I'm, I'm not one of those people that has 10 snoozes on their alarms. My alarm goes off once and I'm up. But, yeah, mornings are just torture for me. <laughs> I'm not meant to be functioning at that time. <laughs> I wonder if that's nature or nurture. Like, I wonder if that's a product of you having done this for so long or I wonder if the fact that you're doing this is because it just was always going to work for you just based on your own natural rhythms. Yeah, I don't – I know I've spoken to my mum about this before and she did say I was always um, a late-night kid. I never wanted to go to bed. I um, My sister's the opposite. She gets quite – she needs quite a lot of sleep. She'll go to bed early and um, – get up earlier um but I've always always before I could even remember even when I worked day shifts would still come home and be awake until about midnight or so even though I had to get up early the next day um so I think I've always been a night person you've just found your fit being a night crawler which is yeah night crawler (laughs) (laughs) which sounds to me like something out of um you know one of these zombie zombie shows Oh dear. Now, what weekly or daily habit makes your life better? Oh, getting outside. It it has to be. That's my daily habit. If I don't get outside, and I think that what's what really um, why working day shifts just didn't agree with me after Mm. a while. Um, I just feel like I'm missing out on the sunshine and the air and doing things and. seeing my family and, you know, taking dog, my dog to the beach and, um, yeah, that's, that's definitely, I'm, I'm, unfortunate. I'm, I'll admit I'm not the best at exercising. Um, yeah. I admire everybody who has an exercise routine. It's just never been something that I've done. Um, um, but walking, you know, walking my dog and, um, yeah, getting out and about is, is something that I need to do daily. And that's 
adds its own natural kind of little exercise too. So yeah, definitely. And again, this question might be, uh, it might be, there's, there's the obvious strange habit you have of being a night crawler. But other than that, do you have any strange habits or superstitions? Oh, I'm very superstitious, which is um, something I think I get from my mum. Hit me. Um, I annoy everybody at my work and say quiet all the time. Quiet, quiet, quiet. Makes the shift go quickly and oh, as in you say you say it's quiet, it's quiet, it's quiet, and just like wish that madness. Yeah. Oh my god, you use the Q word deliberately. <laughs> I'm evil, obviously. <gasps> um, I won't do it when we're already drowning in the, in, in lots of cases. I but thought you were saying like you tell people to be quiet because you're focusing, but no, you're invoking the Q word. Yeah, I'm um, poking the emergency gods. No. Um, um, I know it's, it's, a, but I think people secretly love it as well. It's, <laughs> it's not nice to be, um, bored. Um, and if there is an opportunity to help, we'll twist it around that way. But no, I'm one of those crazy people that's, um, says that, um, but otherwise just a odd things that I do, like I'll knock on wood and sometimes people, I, yes. it's just in my head. Like I'll say something in my head about a patient, like, Oh, I hope. I hope they don't get worse or something and then I'll have to knock on wood yeah in case it happens and nobody will see me do it it's just an odd little thing that I've always done where I fear that if I think it it's going to happen so I have to knock on wood yes so that's probably my weirdest little habit that I consistently do on a daily basis Yeah, I can relate to that too. And when people don't see the thought process, they're just like, why is Hayley always knocking on (laughs) tables and walls? Although if they listen to this, they're going to notice now. (laughs) Yeah, I wonder. um, And so you said your mum's superstitious. I think that there's an element of um, being superstitious too from growing up going to Catholic schools as well because there is a certain amount of ritual. and um, yes. Yeah. yeah, I think you can just kind of have that ingrained too, like all the all the things that you, you, you do, you know, during mass or, you mm-hmm. know, prayers before lunch. Even if you're from an atheist family, you do you, – you, your world is cloaked in, in these um, superstitions or traditions or whatever. So I do think it's a little, a little bit of a, a Catholic thing as well. Yeah, you're probably right. I never thought of that. But there was a, there were a lot of superstitions in my high school. I, I remember now you couldn't – you couldn't walk on the holy grass. There was grass that they you couldn't walk on um, because you'd become a nun if you walked on it. Um, just silly things that I'm sure the teachers spread so that we didn't ruin the grass in certain areas. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Actually, in year seven, the area that we had lunch was a cemetery for that had been like the nun, the nuns' cemetery. So. Um, There there were tombstones and statues and it it didn't at all seem strange at the time. Now that I look back, I'm like, yeah, that's kind of weird. Yeah, it is weird. (laughs) Oh, dear. Now, um, can you think of a purchase made by you or AES that has positively impacted your vet nurse life in recent memory? So this isn't really a purchase, but it's – I hope it is relevant, but um, when I started working at um, AES, 
I was just blown away that we had a client care rep team. Does that count? Yes, it does. And I was going to ask you about that acronym when you said it earlier. You said CCR, people are amazing. Mm -hmm. In my mind, I was thinking, is that client communication? And um, what do you say it stands for? So client care representatives. Okay, yeah. Um, And they are our forefront. Um, They are um, rostered on majority of the night. um, Mm -hmm. So they stay generally... Um, they stay till after midnight um, and they're scheduled all, you know, all weekends and um, from 6 a.m. until after midnight and they also get there at 6 o'clock in the morning. And the reason I love them so much is not only are they the forefront um, in terms of greeting clients, uh, answering all the phones, dealing with finances, um, you know, assisting clients wherever um, they need it, but they really, really allow the vets and nurses to focus on mm. the veterinary job at hand and yeah. treating the patient. Yeah. Um, so they're by far my – I feel like it's a real luxury that I'm so lucky to work with um, in a place that, that has a client care representative team. And obviously that's not all they do that I've mentioned. They have a huge amount of role, a huge role in our practice and they keep everything running. Um, but, yeah, they – I love that I get to – be a nurse clinically because I think that's where my real passion lies is mm. a, a clinical nurse um, and I get to to help the vets with treating that patient and um, when they arrive at the crash bench instead of having to to leave the scene and you know um, help with um, discussing you know finances mm. or mm-hmm. um, getting details and things like that. So what sort of uh, qualifications or, or background do these people have who are working as CCRs? Um, they don't necessarily have to have a, um, a uh, background in veterinary. A lot of them mm-hmm. come in without any background. We do have a, a few of them that um, are actually doing a degree in uh, vet science mm-hmm. uh, and are working towards that but haven't actually worked in a clinic uh then there's just um anybody that um has any admin experience or um is really keen to get their foot into the door of an emergency practice and they're a good team fit um we've also had um ccr team develop into nurses uh once they've seen what we do they'll then go to um do their nursing certificates yeah so um there's not really a criteria in terms of background knowledge Mm -hmm. Um, we do teach them um, um, how to triage we have a system at work where well at Underwood anyway where we have a little doorbell it's quite a long hallway that you have to walk down to get to our crash bench Mm -hmm. it's probably about it's not very long but it seems long it's about 20 meters or so 25 meters to get down the hallway past all the consult rooms we've got 11 consult rooms to get down the hallway uh, to the crash bench and there's a door separating crash bench uh, and the treatment area in the hospital area from the front area mm-hmm. and they there's a doorbell that they can ring and three rings three dings means um, a crash patient unresponsive or you know something that's mm-hmm. seizuring or something really really critical not breathing properly mm-hmm. two two dings is um, an emergency might not be as critical as um, something that uh, is potentially crashing right then and there, but two dings means the owner's coming with them Mm -hmm. and one ding is I'm bringing a patient out the back. 
Okay. Yeah. Okay. That's a good little system you've got going there. And I know what you mean. Like it's nice to just be able to focus on the patient, but somebody does need to be saying, you know, there are, there are different options of what we can do. He, mm. Here's a, a, an estimate, you know, for all three that, that the vets put together. Um, no, we don't do payment plans or yes, we do do payment plans. Here's the form. Like somebody's got to have all of that, the admin and finance conversations. And it is nice to free up the vet and the nurses to not, not be doing that because it, it is, um, I don't know, it's essential, but it is really different. And we rotate our team so that most of our nurses are doing one day out the front, I think it works out to be. And I think it's, it's probably the most exhausting shift for most of us because yeah. – um, it can just be draining and, and you're following up for people on certain things and you've got to get back to them or you're triaging something or you're having somebody really push you and give you, you know, I don't want to say a sob story, but, you know, a sob story of why they need this but they can't pay or whatever. Like it's difficult, draining sort of conversations. Oh, yeah. uh, the emotional, the vicarious trauma, I think, you know, it's well known in the uh, the vets and nurses that we yeah. take on, but the amount that our CCR take on would, you know, easily match ours in terms of yeah. how they are dealing with the the owners and you know yeah. their grief and their yes. Um, and I guess in a in a selfish way, um, the nurses at AES and ICU were a little bit protected from that mm. right now, mm-hmm. um, which is really nice for us. Mm. Um, because it is such a nothing that comes through our doors is really stable, um, mm. and so we're not only dealing with the patient, but we we would have to deal with all the grief from the owner as well. Yeah, which is difficult because you're not, as you say, you're not getting that balance of also dealing with the the happy annual health check appointment of no. the ten year old dog that you've known since it was a puppy, and yeah, you, you did yeah. save it from tick paralysis five years ago, and you formed a bond with the owner and with the patient. So, I mean, when you're not getting that that balance, it is important, I think, as you say, to be shielded. But I do also see it really as a frontline position for our nurses who are on reception or for non nurses who are on reception. I agree they all absolutely um, deserve to be acknowledged for the important role that they do in shielding people and in um, and in helping often grief-stricken clients it, it is yeah. just such an important position and often we're just plodding through it following instinct as to how to do that and when people act in strange ways some initially I'm like what are they doing and then later I'll be like oh that's grief okay that's just somebody acting out in grief because they they're yeah. angry and they don't know what to do and yeah. it it's not logical and it's not easy to deal with so that's um that's a great that's a great um thing to acknowledge that impacts your your vet nursing life yeah, there's some our CCR team are some of the kindest, most empathetic, organized, and there's a you know they all have different personalities, but I am daily in awe of them. And, <laughs> um, it's a tough, tough, tough job, and it doesn't get acknowledged as much as it should. Yeah, I agree, and thanks for acknowledging them. And um, just before we take a quick break, can you tell me about a time when you were able to turn defeat into victory? It could be in a personal or professional capacity. Yeah, so I think um, I, I've, there's probably a lot throughout my career, um, but the most recent difficult um, episode where I guess I felt defeated is um, really learning how to be a mum that has a career. Mm. Um 
that's definitely been a, a really big learning curve for me, um, trying to figure out my work-life balance and learning that it was okay not to be able to do it all at the same capacity that I used to be able to do it all, mm-hmm. um, knowing when to say no, one of my biggest problems, and taking that time out, I think, for myself, for my family, um, knowing that my new normal is is a little bit different and I have different priorities now. So yeah. that has been um, something that my, you know, the HR team, we've got a HR team at work, um, have been amazing with. My managers have been so incredible um, mm-hmm. in helping me through. Um, other mums in the practice giving me advice and, you know, knowing that I've made mistakes and probably overworked myself and then, mm. you know, not, not seeing my son as much as I wanted to and just figuring out a roster that that really works for family and still enables me to be, you know, in that teaching, training, um, supervisory role um, in our clinic. That's great. You're so supported. The, the way that your roster looks like now and the way that you went back to work, is that what you envisioned or how you planned it before or do they look the same or are they different? No, so it, it's not my ideal roster, but, you know, if I didn't have a kid, yeah. um, I would. I used to um, do a lot more clinical shifts and I've had to cut mm-hmm. down on my clinical shifts um, mm-hmm. and I do a couple more admin shifts to make up my hours uh, and that involves, you know, training new nurses and um, day-to-day running of the – I'm on um, the leadership team for AES and um, – the ICU, so we have fortnightly uh, traction meetings and, um, you know, sorting things out. Um, but I'm in charge of a lot of the training components in there. Um, and so I drop a couple of clinical shifts a month, but that's that's something that for some reason really felt like I was losing a little bit part of myself. I'm like, yeah. no, but I'm a clinical nurse. Why? Yeah. Um, so I dropped that um, and I've also never in my eight years had a weekend off, which sounds crazy, <laughs> <laughs> but I have a frosted weekend off um, a month now and yeah. it's lovely. Yeah. It's really lovely. Oh, that's really good. Yeah. Um, I I ask that because I, both me and our practice manager who's just had a baby, both of us before we had our kids um, were like, right, so I'll be back to work um, to this percentage of my shifts at four months and then at six mm-hmm. months they'll be in daycare full time and we'll be doing this. And And I know that that has worked for some people and that works for friends of mine, but when I was actually in the situation and same with her, we're like, oh, no, that's not what's happening at all. Yeah. Um, and you just don't know until you're in that situation. And, and I, I know what you mean about making peace and having to make those decisions and and. In, in a way, yeah, it is a defeat in some aspects if you're like giving up one thing that you you really have formed as part of your identity, but um, mm. you know that that these little these little guys are growing so fast and you need to to maximize your time and be there for your family yeah, and exactly I, I was um, part way through my um, VTS the veterinary technician specialization, the American accredited um, one and I was um, had collected, almost all of my cases and was ready to submit and um, I 
we were planning to have a, a baby and I, I guess we were really some really lucky in that um, I got pregnant pretty much straight away, which I wasn't expecting as mm-hmm. um, I was over, I'm 30, was 31 when I got pregnant. So I mm-hmm. thought it would take a little while. I thought I had a little bit of time um, and yeah, I got pregnant and then just didn't, didn't have time to finish my VTS. So that's been put on the back burner. So mm-hmm. um, I think, yeah, really being at peace with, the fact that I can come back to that later and the important yeah. the important thing is is absolutely my son at the moment. It's nice when you actually – I think the worst thing is the lead-up to making that decision to defer these things because I had started my diploma in vet nursing in majoring in general practice as well mm-hmm. and I was thinking I could go back to it but and I was like, oh, I'll probably be bored with all the naps my son will have. <laughs> yes, me too. That's what I thought. That's why I signed up. I'm so funny, silly. So funny <laughs> now in hindsight. Um, but the, the major stress was in thinking oh I'll defer it for another month and then I'll go back and then I'll go back and once I made the decision of okay I'm just going to completely drop out for a few years then it was all better I was like oh, that's a great decision yes yeah that's exactly what it, yeah as soon as I made that as soon as I in my head you know let go and just said this is your you know this is what's important right now you're still working in some capacity so you're still you know feeding your soul, feeding my soul a little bit by going going to work and doing what I love. Um, yeah, that's that's when everything kind of I feel like I became victorious through that situation is is having that that mental peace with everything. Yeah, I love it. Well that this is a, a really great note, I think, to to wrap up the first little part of our interview and have a quick break on on the high, on the on the victorious high. So are you good if we, we come back in a in a few seconds? Yeah, absolutely. Excellent. Support for Radio Vet Nurse comes from you, if you like. So far, two corporate sponsors, ReadyVet and the Animal Industries Resource Centre, have kindly helped cover some of the costs of these free episodes. You can help too by scoring yourself some eco-friendly and oh-so-chic Radio Vet Nurse merch. Head to my website, radiovetnurse.com, and check out my glass-reusable coffee keep cup, which you can take to your favourite cafe and save the need for single-use paper cups. Continuing in the theme of eco-friendly receptacles for vet nurse fuel, I've also got a lightweight, shatter-resistant glass water bottle. All with Radio Vetness logo, so we know we're in the club. Wink, wink. That's all. Carry on. Welcome back, Haley. What advice would you give to someone about to enter the world of vet nursing? If you can go in remembering to be kind to yourself mm. is the first thing. Um, you cannot know everything straight away. Mm. Um, you will feel overwhelmed. You will feel like you're not doing a good job in certain areas. Um, but by constantly, you know, striving to do better and be better for your patients and having that as your your goal and goal in each situation that you're in, I think that's the main thing that I try to teach people to understand is just to be really kind to yourself, know when to say no. Um, mm. um, we all get into this industry. I haven't met a, a single person that gets into this industry that doesn't want to help animals. Um, and it's a lot to take on when um, you potentially, you know, don't 
feel like you've done the best you could have because you just aren't at that level yet. So um, I, I think being kind to yourself is a big big thing. I think that's excellent advice. And on, on a similar note, what would you tell a student vet nurse who's um, doing their studies but maybe struggling, getting to the tricky end of things? Yeah, find a good, passionate mentor, someone who inspires you, um, someone that you see has an amazing work ethos and, you know, morals and just comes to work every day exuding their love for what they're doing. Mm. Um, that would be, that's been my biggest motivator throughout my career is is being lucky enough to surround myself with people that are, you know, I've been, I've been doing this for 20, in the industry for 20 years now. And, um, a lot of my colleagues have been doing this for even longer and they still come to work loving what they're doing and, and wanting to, to be the best that they can be that day. So that would be my advice. Found a really good mentor. Yeah. Excellent. And I, I'm, I love meeting these people who are still so passionate like yourself after so many years in the industry. I think we're lucky um, to have to have so many of us who who feel like that and it, it definitely is contagious so surround yourself with those positive people rather than um, I guess um, people who are a little bit more jaded or maybe needing to move on from the industry yeah. and yeah are there any bad or old recommendations that you hear as a vet nurse so this could be from colleagues or clients that you think should be replaced with more useful or modern information okay um, this is a little bit controversial but I have an explanation for it <laughs> so <laughs> I'm not a huge fan of um, the the mentality that goes around sometimes where, um, and it's not necessarily the wording of the buck stops with the vet, um, but the, the impression that it can give to nurses that they don't have a say mm. um, because I really feel that patient safety is a nurse's responsibility as well. Mm -hmm. um, so... Um, I really think that, you know, well-educated, qualified nurses um, can create a real positive environment with their vets and, and managers or anybody um, to have more open communication between how they're, they're dealing with their patients. Um, I am, and the reason I'm saying this is having worked at AES, um, I am surrounded by some of the most amazing vets who really acknowledge and utilize um, these nurses with experience and mm. say, you know, oh, I've never seen a dog, um, you know, especially some of our new vets, I've never seen a dog in VTAC. Um, what what would you normally do or what would they normally do? Or, mm. you know, um, I'm really concerned about this patient. I know that he's been checked already, but he's still got abdominal pain. He's, he's now pyrexic. Mm. Um, I'm... I know that you've been told before, but I, I, these are the reasons why I'm concerned. He's he's now tachycardic, like, um, and they. It's not that they're that we're always right, obviously, but the acknowledgement um, that our voice matters mm. um, has is something that I think is is really really important um, in our in our industry, um, and the. The buck absolutely at the end of the day stops with the vet. I, I agree with that wholeheartedly. And, you know, they make mm. the decisions and 
they're the ones that give the prognosis and give the treatment. Um, but I do feel that sometimes um, if we create that sort of a mindset from the beginning with our baby nurses that that they will not have the confidence to say something that might save a patient's life. Yeah, I agree. And so the recommendation I think that you're saying is not so useful is um, it's not so much a recommendation, but it's that um, that culture of look just be a nurse and do the TPR and write it on the cage card and stick to nursing and you're not a vet or whatever. But yeah, um, that's that, it. That's I, I didn't know where how to fully yeah. explain the the title of it. But yeah, I don't know how to either. But I know exactly what you mean, and it changes the way nurses will think about a case or you know how they interact with a client. And just because you're not a vet, it doesn't mean that you shouldn't have. A list of differentials on your mind, for example, and it doesn't mean that you're overstepping and making a diagnosis. It just means that you're you're thinking about things like, well, on my list of differentials is this, so maybe I'm just going to go when I take this patient out or when I express the bladder, I am going to get a urine sample and um, and just have that there because yeah. we we may want to want to test that, and I am going to go ahead and and use my initiative to to check this or to do that, and and you're not going outside of the scope of what has been asked of you, but you're able to report back to the vet and say, this has now changed. Um, would you like me to go set up the ultrasound? Or, you know, I, I did get a urine catch because I did notice, um, you know, some some polydipsia. So do you want me to go run that urinalysis? Or- yeah, absolutely. And I think, um, you know, the more teamwork involved, the more trust um, that's mm. created between vets and nurses is so empowering for nurses like it's just such an amazing thing to um to be in ICU and for us to you know rewrite the nursing plans they get we get they get a diagnosis they get um, a prognosis and they get a treatment plan in terms of drugs and fluid therapy and Mm. um, anything like that but we essentially create the nursing plans once they once they hit our um come through our doors and um we'll schedule them for how often we think they need um TPRs and uh you know blood pressure checks all sorts of things yeah um and the vets have complete trust in that we we are aware of um what type of um monitoring these patients need you know yeah so that's been that's been really really lovely lovely just I just feel like um I'm being utilized to a much higher level um that you know we've been trained for that we uh that they're really using utilizing it as as uh, to our highest capacity um possible this is a, a theme that keeps coming up on this show which i really love which is this positive way that we can move forward by um continuing to as sue crampton said educate our vets on the way that nurses can be leveraged and continuing to work on the development of this uh, veterinary healthcare team and knowing who's doing what and why and um, and being able to have nurses be fulfilled in their jobs and be trusted to do things and matt said something at our recent christmas party to our team 
um, which was just basically acknowledging the contribution that that our nurses have made to our patients just by being asked to step up and speak up about what patients would want. And, and he said the other day he walked into our hospital and he can see patients in the bear hugger and patients on really soft foam bedding that the girls asked to have made. And, you know, we went and we bought the, the foam that they wanted and they took it to the guy who puts the vinyl on the speedboat seats yeah, and he yeah. covered them in that. And they got the blankets that they wanted and they've got, you know, you know, all the, all the fancy sort of gadgets and stuff that they want. We keep trying to provide, but often they just want bedding and blankets and foam bedding. And, and when Matt looks around, he's really happy, you know, that the patients yeah. are, you know, they have all of these things and they're so much more comfortable than what he would think of. So I think definitely empowering your nurses by changing that culture from one that might be like, okay, just do your TPR and write it on the cage card. Cause you know, we've got this um, mm. and you just need to be doing your part to, to getting vet nurses comfortable to say this is what I can bring to the table is this would this be of interest like how can we work this yeah absolutely and I think um being really um having had experiences and you know just just last week the one of our our vets who's extremely experienced he's one of the directors um of our Gold Coast clinics um there was a particular dog in ICU um, that needed a tracheostomy tube and he'd been on, he was a tick paralysis little dog that had been on and off the vent for aspiration pneumonia, but he also had severe upper airway laryngeal dysfunction uh, or paralysis, but it was, you know, five days down the track that he still wasn't able to to breathe because of this severe upper airway obstruction. And um, after uh a lot of consultation from the nurses and he he came in and he heard all of us and we just all um really um just discussed with him and said we're really concerned about this upper airway we just don't think this this dog is ever going to be extubated in the near future um without doing something different and he examined the patient um listened to us acknowledged our concerns and um it ended up um that he got a trackie and was discharged a couple of days later because of that um oh, obviously the trackie awesome. was removed and his airway recovered but mm. um and he made a note of of thanking people mm. um for speaking up he said to the nurses that came to him thank you so much for for giving me um your thoughts and ideas on this case because it wasn't a typical case and um you guys have essentially saved his life. Yeah. And so that's really nice to have yeah. a vet that's so humble that says we had to do something different and these nurses had some really good ideas. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I'm thankful that I get to work with, with people like that. Yeah, and I mean when you've got this group of amazing qualified nurses who have got so many years of experience between them, like they know this is this is unusual, like this is not mm. the routine case and we've got a new grad vet at the moment and she, the practice that she was at before she was with us didn't have nurses with experience um, and they weren't qualified nurses so she was sort of used to having to shoulder everything um, or, yes. or be, be responsible for every aspect of the patient's care and one thing we've been trying 
going to to teach her with us is you know utilize these um, the qualified nurses on our team who are also training up these amazing juniors that we have but really utilize the qualified experienced nurses because they will save your butt you know they will be monitoring your patient post-operative and they will they will know if there's reobstruction mm. and they will save the day and you know you can put them in charge of the, of the most important patient at any given time when you can't be there with them but definitely you know grab them from out the front or wherever they are and direct them to those patients in need so yeah no I I feel very lucky that there is that trust and teamwork yeah in it's awesome now how do you look after your mental well-being and prevent compassion fatigue and attached to that are you coming into your most um your busiest time of the year with with new year and christmas and other clinics sort of shut down like is this a a high stress time for you guys yeah so okay um first i'll answer the last question you asked definitely coming into um high stress our high stress kind of october is our busiest month in terms of um patience it's relatively predictable each year that October is just goes gangbusters um, mm-hmm. and I think that's ticks and snakes and it's a bit warmer all sorts of things um, but as you said yeah the Christmas New Year's period is um, definitely a um, oh, you, if you could see me I'm smiling like a Cheshire cat I just <laughs> it's it's a really fun time of year in terms of we're busy um, yeah and um we have all hands on deck everybody's prepared for it um we all come into this job knowing that we're going to be working christmas and public holidays it's well known when you do the interview process um you know are you prepared to work christmas and public holidays yeah um so it's not like it's a surprise to anyone that they have to work these days um but we are so the Christmas period this year is a little bit funny because Boxing Day and um, Christmas is a Tuesday, Wednesday. Um, so we've got Saturday, Sunday, or today and tomorrow, actually, we're about to hit Christmas. Um, and yeah. then there's the Monday off, which most general practices aren't opening for. Yeah. Um, so we will actually be around as well. Um, and it's going to end up being sort of this weird four to five day um period where we're all going to be here um and yeah definitely it's one of our busiest times of year and in terms of how do I look after myself um during the busy times um sleep making sure I've um scheduled times to to sleep making sure I've got appropriate um days off between my runs of shifts um so we usually have a minimum of two days off between shifts so that we can recover from night shift and spend time with family. So I routinely we'll get, you know, maximum of four shifts. We never do more than four shifts a row unless there's an on-call attached to it. So yeah. there might be an on-call as your fifth shift. Um, yeah. But routinely we don't do any more than four shifts in a row because working night shifts is very different to doing four-day shifts. Mm-hmm. Um, so there needs to be time to recover. So yeah, making sure that you've got appropriate days off, and and our um, our senior nurses that do the rostering um, do are very aware of that, and go when they do the rostering, um, they make sure that people have appropriate days off, and um, if there are because it's a computer generated system, if there are any errors and you don't have two days off, um, it's absolutely your responsibility to to let them know and say, oh, I'm, I've only got one day off between these two runs, four yeah. sets of yeah. shifts. 
Um, is there anything we can do to move it around? And they are more than happy to try to to move things around. But having so many nurses on staff, you, they when the roster comes out, there's always a little note saying, please check your run flow of shifts and your days off um, in case our you know, in case we've made a mistake, we're more than happy to fix it. Mm. And I think just general, you know, time off with family, my pets, friends um, is really, really important. Um, yeah. And um, my my practice is very, very big on open communication. Um, we have an employee assistance program mm, um, that helps um, anybody that in need. It's a free service um, unrelated to the practice that um, – has counselling services, you know, mm-hmm. you can go to them for anything, financial help, yeah. um, um, maternity chats about coming back coming back into the workplace, grief yeah. counselling, anything. Or they've got all sorts of different counsellors that um, are all confidential mm. and um, you can book in online to be a face-to-face consult mm-hmm. over the phone or um, via chat and that's 24 hours a day. It's so easy to set up for any business that doesn't have an EAP, so Employee Assistance Program. I think we put one into place a couple of years ago and for us we just approached an independent um, provider of counselling and psychology services and said, can we have an EAP? And they said, yeah, no worries. And they came and did a presentation at a staff meeting when we first launched it and now that's, you know, what what they said at that meeting is part of every induction basically and we have their phone number laminated on the wall and any Mm -hmm. staff member can ring up and book an appointment and we will pay for two appointments for every employee per year and we don't know who went. Like I will get an invoice that just says a number rather than saying who went and then they will contact me if they feel like this person that's had two sessions really could just do with two more and they might say to me you know we think that we can actually tie this up in another two sessions is that okay and then I'll approve that and um, it's something that's so easy but it's also great if you're the employer like for me because if I have a staff member who's going through something difficult that can also be taxing on me to be that point of communication with them whereas I can just say have you thought about using the EAP like have you got the phone number um, because I'm not a professional and maybe you should speak to somebody who can genuinely help you. So I think that um, for any businesses that don't have one or think, oh, that's too difficult, they're so easy to set up. Yeah, they are amazing. Um, they recently came and did a review talk with us um, a couple of months ago and there were things that I didn't even realise they offered that I should have utilised the coming back to work maternity, post-maternity leave probably would have been a good one for me to to utilise and if I do have any more children I think I definitely will but yeah. even the fact that they're there is a comfort to know yeah. um, that if I, I really did um, have any life events and it doesn't have to be work-related at all um, no. where I needed some professional help um, is awesome and as you said directing people we're not professionals um, I don't know necessarily the right thing to say or to recommend mm. um, to people going through um, traumatic events in their life and as empathetic as I can be, um, it can get, yeah, really, you can't help but take on some vicarious trauma because I think mm. that's the type of people that we are. That's um, right. We're the compassionate, empathetic people that, that want to help, um, but sometimes we just can't. We're not, we're not the right people to do that. Yeah, that's right. And I mean, we just have to draw the line somewhere and, and um, there's, a, there's a limit to 
the, the services that we can provide to our colleagues, but it is nice to for there to be somewhere for people to go and chat. So um, I think that's great that AES, they sound like they're an amazing um, organisation to work for and I'm not at all surprised that they're on the front foot with that. And if you ever feel overwhelmed about life or work, what do you do? I guess you know you've got the backup there of your EAP and um, some great colleagues. Is there anything else? Um, oh, look, I'm not a big crier in in the practice or anything like that. I, I but my poor husband. <laughs> I, sometimes I just need a really good cry. I come yeah. home and um, he's there for me. And um, yeah, a big cry into my husband's chest sometimes makes the world of difference. Um, um, I just need that to just get rid of energy, get yeah. it out of me. <laughs> you know, there's like husbands of Instagram. I feel like there should be husbands of vet nurses. And they- I know. <laughs> it's so funny. He, he, he's, he's a pretty good vet nurse now, I think, especially through general practice days. We've yeah. been together for 12 years now. So he was around um, for the last couple of years that I was in general practice. And, of course, you know, um, we, we would – I would go in on weekends, we'd have patients to still look after and, and mm. he'd be my nurse um, helping me, <laughs> you know, replace IV catheters and yeah. um, doing yeah. treatments and things like that. So he's learned a fair bit along the way. Um, but, yeah, good cry to my husband. Um, as I, I know you've mentioned before writing a list and a plan. Um, yeah. Sometimes that can seem really overwhelming at the time because you're just in your head, you're like, I just have so much to do. I don't even know how to put it on paper. but. Mm. That definitely helps and just, you know, ticking it off. Um, yeah, chip away. Uh, I'm a big talker, so talking about it to someone but kind of checking, remembering to check with them first that it's okay to yeah. talk about it Yeah. Um, because you just don't know what's going on in people's lives and as we just said before, it just might be too much for them to take on at that mm. time. You know, they might be feeling just as overwhelmed in a situation. Mm-hmm. Um, so... Um, uh, making sure that you're you're not sliming them with with any of your feelings um, that you might be having and and asking permission to do that. It's a great point. Um, There's nothing I've never done that before, but it's yeah, so so important to check in with someone. You know, is this going to be the the straw that breaks the camel's back for you? If I just have a little dump, like, is that okay? Yeah, I learned that from um, I don't know. I think you would have heard of Rosie Overfield. Yes. Um, Every episode yeah, she I love comes crazy. up. Yeah. I've a couple of um, she's uh, you know meetings with her and she's come out for um, um, tutorials. She's helped us with all the personality profiles and stuff as well oh, in the good. early days. Um, and she she gave that bit of advice early on um, mm-hmm. in my career and said always check with the person. Uh, always get permission yeah. to. Um, you know talk to somebody about what might be concerning you um especially people in the same industry as you Um, and it's and if it is um related to the industry because as much as you don't want to become a toxic person it can create a bit of toxicity by um you know putting your feelings um and stirring up feelings in other people. And um, I'd like to think of myself as a relatively resilient person. Um, And that's what I, I mean, I've learned that over the years, obviously, and um, worked on it a lot and read about resiliency and gone to seminars and uh, on compassion fatigue and learned what works for me. But 
other people might not be in the same stage as me and I might get over something much faster and learn, you know, know what to do for myself and me venting to someone knowing that I'll be over it in a day might not help that person who hasn't learned those skills yet. And sometimes it's just a particular day you can't deal with anymore. Like with my husband and I both in the industry, some days we're both really happy to chat, you know, and be really energized about chatting through great things or difficult things over dinner. But some nights one of us will just be like, I can't talk about this anymore today. Yes. And um, I think it's important to be honest with people too if they're checking in with you to just be like, if you're just feeling your jaw clench and your shoulders go up, just go, Love you. Can't talk about this today. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> so that's the moment that I watch trash TV. Yes. <laughs> Late at night when my son has gone to sleep yeah. and I just can't talk about it. I'll put something really terrible on. Like, I, I don't know, Kardashians or yes. um, uh, Bachelor. Anything that I don't have to think about. Yes. That is my guilty pleasure. That and is that. Mine yeah. too. I will watch Kardashians or like yeah. Vanderpump <laughs> Rules or read yes. NW and my brain's just like, thank you. Thank you yeah. for this glorious trash. I feel so yeah. much better. I wish I could say I'm one of those people that goes out for a run to clear my head, no, but I'm not that screw person. screw that. Give me the Kardashians <laughs> and a glass of wine any day. Yeah. <laughs> uh, very good. Now, what's the main area of our industry that you think needs attention or improvement? Oh, look, I'm pretty impressed with our industry over yeah. the having been in here in the industry for a little while I know that change doesn't happen overnight and it's pretty I'm pretty impressed as to where it's come from yeah um it might not seem like it's come very far to some people that are just getting into the industry but um the you know as I was talking about before nurse empowerment and utilization has improved in leaps and bounds mm. compared to 20 years ago when I um, was first first started and mm. you know that that definitely was a time where the buck stopped with the vet yeah. um I feel um and we have just going from strength to strength because of these you know leaders in the industry like Sue Crampton like Joe Hatcher that are just moving moving us along so well yeah. um the registration that mm. they're talking about nurse registration um i'm really excited about um yeah. i guess making sure that people realize that that things are moving and that they can get involved mm. and and help continue the movement is is maybe um having the, you know nurses having some accountability that that if they're not happy with the situation that mm-hmm. they have the power to do something about it that's right and that's why sue crampton said she's still involved with the vnca now is because she feels like if she has a suggestion or an idea then you kind of got to put your money where your mouth is if you can see how things might be better or whatever then be involved and yeah. um you know be part of driving that and um i think it's a really exciting time to be a vet nurse just with registration coming up and and all of these things so um i'm fully with you on that and just to to wrap things up today if you could reach out and thank a mentor who's helped you in your career and personal development in our industry who would it be and what would you say oh i'm going to have to say dr ellie lester um she is our icu that she only started working at um in the icu in 2012 so i'd been there for a little bit before she started but she has been a game changer um Mm -hmm. in terms of just 
uh, as you can tell, I'm pretty focused on this this nurse empowerment and teamwork and, mm -hmm. you know, utilising all of us to the best of our abilities so that we can all reach that common goal, which is patient care and, you know, getting the practice to run smoothly and her knowledge, um, her the way she talks, the, the pep talks that she gives me, the communication with owners and every single staff, she just emulates um, what what all of us should strive to be and I, she does it so effortlessly it was yeah. it's just her I think um and she has been my supporter from day one um and I don't know if I'd be where I am right now without her in mm. terms of my clinical knowledge um the skills that she's taught me um that really advanced me and put me at the top you know not the top but you know like the mm. the the top of the field in terms of critical care nursing mm -hmm. um so i know i i know she's a vet and i, I there are so many nurses that i have to thank but mm. she has definitely for me personally been just been a game changer in my career. That's excellent. And I think vets make great mentors for vet nurses. And I think it's a, a two-way street and a symbiotic relationship, the way that nurses can elevate vets in what they're doing as well. And that's that beautiful relationship when it's working, it's empowering both parties, making great results for the patients, the clients. And that's definitely what we want to aim for. Well, it's been amazing talking to you this morning. And um, for anyone wanting to have a look into your world and what you're doing and what you get up to, they can tune in to Bondi Vet next year. Um, and AES is one of the practices that they'll be looking at. And I'm sure they'll see you in the background and be like, oh, my God, that's Hayley. <laughs> yeah, I don't think I'll have any speaking roles, which is great <laughs> because <laughs> I don't think I can do anything in front of a camera. Um, but, no, thank you so much for having me. I, I um, hope the listeners find some interest in, in me babbling on. But um, this is such a great initiative. I'm so excited that you've done this and it's been awesome listening to the previous speakers. It really is awesome, Kat. This Aww. is great. Thank you. Thank you very much. Yeah, I, I'm really glad I got to have the emergency criti critical care sort of side of things. And you've been a great guest. And um, we've had lots of other strange things in common, like looking after tiny humans and um, yes, tiptoeing around not to um, turn into nuns or disturb the graveyards at our and Catholic Kardashians. schools and Ka Kardashians. <laughs> so I really feel we've connected on multiple levels and I've loved chatting with you. Awesome. Thank you so, so much. Thanks for listening to Radio Vet Nurse, the podcast. To help us make more free episodes, subscribe and leave a review. Find us on Facebook and Instagram at Radio Vet Nurse or drop in at radiovetnurse.com.